Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And this is... uh, the Gospel of the Annunciation. It certainly is used at the Feast of the Annunciation, which is the feast of basically really the Feast of the Incarnation. It is when Christ um, is conceived in the womb of the Virgin. And in the early centuries of the Church, this was the feast that was celebrated as the Feast of the Incarnation. Christmas, the 25th of December, came at a little bit later date. And and I think that it's it's important for us to know that the feast of the birth of the Lord is not the feast of the incarnation of the Lord. That's the 25th of March. The feast of the birth of the Lord is when the Lord comes forth into the world. And it's why, for instance, in the Eastern churches, that it is associated and tied up with the feast of the Epiphany, the feast of the manifestation, because the birth is part of the manifestation of the Lord. And so what we celebrate then at Christmas time is basically the the incarnation being manifest to the world. And both in the birth in Bethlehem and in the adoration of the Magi and it's why also um liturgically the feast is associated with the baptism of the Lord which is the testimony of the Father to the identity of the Son and therefore a further manifestation of the presence of the Messiah. And then also the wedding feast of Cana uh, is is grouped into those four feasts that are considered to be the feast, the major, the inclusive feast of Epiphany. For it is at Cana that the Lord first manifests himself as Messiah. So that being said, we return then now to the story of the Incarnation itself. And there's a lot of background to the story of the Incarnation, you know. It's very common, especially as the anti-Christian sen- uh, sentiment within Western society uh, begins to to harden and to expand. There's a lot of intention of simply dismissing the virgin birth and saying, oh, well, you know, people have done that for centuries. You know, the ancient Mesopotamians thought that Sargon of Acadia was, uh, was somehow rather miraculously born. Buddha was miraculously born in the Roman Empire with the cult of the emperor. Augustus also was among those who were claimed to be somehow rather miraculously born. But And none of those things actually really are the same story in any way, shape, or form with the story of the, the virgin conception and birth of, of Jesus. There's all sorts of, of strange kind of uh, phenomenon, the impregnation by snakes, and all of these other kinds of things having to do with these. The only place, interestingly enough, that has anything comparable to the gospel narrative some of the ancient religious uh, legends of uh, the Iroquois Confederacy in the United States, in northeastern United States. And while they do not absolutely parallel the story in Luke, there is there are some striking similarities to it. And to me, what is interesting about that is that, you know, we all, as part of our human nature, we participate in the divine being. The fact that we should naturally come somehow or other images of reality, 
that have some kind of relationship with one another should not be surprising. And that, in fact, it would be more surprising if we all share this human nature, which is in its basic form somehow a participation in, uh, in the divine being, that we do not also share some common insights. We know that uh, in the whole construction of human nature, the whole construction of the human person, from the time of Augustine on, we have been kind of aware of the idea of a tripartite soul, a soul that kind of reflects the Trinitarian reality in whose life we participate by being in the image and the likeness of the divine. And in that is a component, in that, in that soul is a component of what they call, of what Augustine called memory, which is something of um, the psychology of the the 19th and early 20th century actually used that image as an explanation for the unconscious or the subconscious. So it's all a very complex thing, and there is no easy way to say that, well, you know, this is the whole story everywhere for everyone. But what we do know is that nowhere in the world is the idea of the Incarnation articulated in the same way as it articulated in the Gospels. Even in the Hindu god Vishnu, Vishnu comes as a human, but in disguise as a human. And so it's not integral to who he is. Whereas in the incarnation, the power of the idea of the virgin birth is that Christ does derive humanity from his mother, from Mary. He is conceived by the Virgin Mary, and he is born of the Virgin Mary. And as a as being conceived within her, he participates in his gestation period in her humanity and derives from her that part of himself which is human. There is no other parallel to that in the world. And as I said, the only thing that comes anywhere close is in the religious mythology of the Iroquois Confederacy of uh, New York, Ontario, and that area up there. So that what we're looking at now is a unique story, a story that reaches back into the Old Testament for images and even for language, and that uh, actually begins to tell us what is the origin of the feast that we come to celebrate at Christmas. The origin is in the conception of the child. And so the church chooses then the gospel of the Annunciation in order that we might have a much clearer sense, a much clearer idea of who this child is that we welcome on the 25th of December, whose manifestation is in the coming of the three kings, in the Epiphany, in the Baptism, and in the Wedding Feast of Cana. The gospel reads, The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. According to the marriage customs of the age, Mary would have probably been about 14 or 15 years old at the time that this transpired, because that was the normal marrying age for a young woman. She is a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, some people have also taken issue with the idea of virgin. Well, they say, well, the Alma of Isaiah 7.14 really means a maiden. But in ancient Israel, those two were the same thing. Any young woman, 14 or 15, who was not virgin at the time of her marriage was an adulteress and would be treated harshly accordingly. And we find that Joseph deals with this at a later time. Of Joseph of the house of David, and here's something else that we should ponder. 
Both Luke and Matthew give the genealogy of Jesus, and both of them trace them through Joseph, his legal father, so that there is no proclamation in the Gospels that Mary herself is of the house of David. However, there is a strong tradition which said that she is part of the uh, Aaronite priestly tribe, and that um, that the presumption has been from the beginning, since David, since Jesus takes his humanity from Mary, that she also is of the house of David. But the Scripture does not say that, and this is interesting because Jesus is therefore of the house of David, according to Matthew and Luke, by adoption, not necessarily through natural generation. Although the strong tradition saying Mary is of the house of David would indicate also a tradition of genetic descent, of a real genetic descent from the King David. But since we oftentimes are, are uh, referred to as the adopted children of God, then the very fact that Jesus' claim to the Davidic messianism is the fact that he himself is adopted into the Davidic line through Joseph, his foster father. So it is Joseph that gives the legitimacy, in ancient Israel at least, it gives the legitimacy to Jesus' claim to Davidic inheritance, to Davidic lineage. Some people could probably get disturbed by that, but it shows, you know, this whole this whole story shows a couple of things that are really fascinating to us. Um, for instance, in the whole pro-life movement, when does life begin? According to ancient Christianity and according to the Christian tradition from the very days, earliest of days, it begins at conception because that's the feast of the incarnation of the Lord is the Annunciation to Mary and the conception of the child Jesus in her womb. There is also a strong uh, legitimization of the legitimate relationship between the adopted child and the natural family um, that Jesus himself represents. And in a sense, if we listen carefully to the scriptures, as far as we are, as far as the covenant is concerned, we are all adopted. There are none of us naturally generated of God. Um, that that we are all adopted into the covenant, so that all Christians are adopted children in that sense. And all Christians are adopted children in the sense that adoption is in a way a great privilege because it means that we are chosen, and it means that an adopted child is deliberately chosen to be part and a member of a family. So the Christmas story is certainly something that is favorable to the pro-life movement. It certainly is favorable to the whole issue of what it means in contemporary society to be an adopted child, because um, Jesus represents this as being descended from David legally through his foster father, Joseph. Then he went and, and he said to her, Rejoice, full of grace. Now, this has a meaning within the Christian tradition. I recall very much, certainly when, when I took theology, it was a mixture of many different things. One of the professors was very strictly a manualist, a traditional manualist. And the whole justification for the Immaculate Conception was that the angel said, full of grace. If someone is full of grace, they cannot therefore also be, have any taint of sin in them. And the gospel, this does not contradict what the gospel says. It's complementary to it. But the gospel doesn't exactly proclaim that. 
O highly favored one, O full of grace, certainly her uniqueness and certainly her unique goodness is manifested. And if that is then um, further interpreted in the sense of Mary's Immaculate Conception, that's not non-scriptural, but it is derivative and is not primal. But she was deeply disturbed by these words, and she asked herself, what does this greeting mean? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. You have won God's favor. Obviously, if there is an angelic presence and an angelic person who enters into someone's visual life, and here again, I think it's very, very dangerous in contemporary interpretation sometimes to say, well, this was all just kind of an interior experience that Mary had. That's not what the scripture says. The angels are very real in the scriptures, especially the the archangels, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael. They are not simply interior experiences. They have an existence of their own, separate from ours. That certainly there are times when the word, when the angels are used in the Old Testament as a euphemism for God himself. And uh, St. Gregory the Great reminds us that the angels really take form and shape for us when they are on a mission. Well, certainly Gabriel is on a mission now. He is on a mission to announce to the one who is going to be privileged to carry the Son of God and to give, share with him her humanity. And he is going to appear to her and he is going to tell her what options she has. Notice this is interesting. The last woman created without original sin was Eve. Eve faced the ultimate choice in her total freedom between good and evil. Eve chose evil. The next woman who enters into human history totally free from sin is the Virgin Mary. She also has a choice to make in her total freedom. And that's the story of the Annunciation. And that's the story of Christianity. For Mary now stands at the crossroads of human history. She may do, she is free to do what Eve did. She is free to choose herself over God or to choose God because he has asked her to. And so the story, keeping this in mind, the story goes on. And Gabriel says, listen, you are to conceive and bear a son and you must name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and his reign will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, but how can this come about since I'm a virgin? How can this come about since I do not know man? The fact is, if Mary had intended to go into a normal marriage with Joseph, this would not have been a question. So that leaves a mysterious element to Mary's response. Now, in the, in the, the Gnostic Gospels or the Proto-Evangelium, what we find is people, um, the Gospel of James, the Gospel of Mary, and so forth, going on to uh, speculate, at least, that Mary was a committed temple virgin and all of this. But there's no scriptural uh, foundation for that. Could it have been? Certainly it could have been. There was a tradition in Israel of celibacy. It wasn't a popular tradition and it wasn't a strong tradition. 
at the time that the Annunciation is taking place, the Essenes in the Qumran, in the, Qumran in, in the desert near the Dead Sea, many of them lived celibate lives. So it wasn't a foreign concept to Judaism. But blessing usually was seen in progeny. And so it was a radical exception to the norm of Jewish culture, of Hebrew culture. When Mary says this, she might say, oh yeah, okay, um, I'm going to be married soon and then Joseph and I can have a child, so I understand this. But she's totally baffled. And she said, how can this come about uh, since I'm a virgin, since I don't know man? Obviously in that is the implication that, and I'm not going to. And so, so we have here an argument toward the perpetual virginity of Mary, something which causes great consternation to the Reformed tradition of Christians. And the angel answers her, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but the angel answers her and says, the power of the Most High will cover, will cover you and it, with its shadow. Um, the covering with the shadow and so forth is uh, used by, in the Old Testament, of the Lord God with Israel, his bride. It is, in a sense, it's, it's a euphemism even there for sleeping with the bride. So it's saying that this is going to be a real conception by the Holy Spirit. And so the paternal element of the pregnancy of Mary is going to be divine. And the child will be holy and will be called the Son of God. The child is going to be called a Son of God. Now, that doesn't mean the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That doesn't mean the Trinitarian Son here in this Gospel. But it does mean a very intimate relationship with the Father. And then he says, then the angel says, In this too, your kinswoman Elizabeth has in her old age conceived a son in whom she is called and, and she whom people called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And here comes the crooks of it all. And Mary, remember, Eve stood, between the, stood in front of the tree of good and evil. The serpent came, seduced her into a dialogue, a conversation that distorted the truth until Eve eventually capitulated and chose herself over God. With that came the change in the whole created order of the human race. With that then came the original sin, however we we choose to interpret that. But Mary says, I am the maidservant of the Lord. Let what you have said be done to me. Absolute opposite of Eve. Eve chose herself over God. Mary chooses God over herself. She is not to know man. She knows that there are consequences of carrying a child outside of marriage. And she knows that whatever this mysterious phenomenon really turns out to be in her life, that she is the total handmaid servant, in some texts it even says slave girl of the Lord that she submits completely to the divine will. And in submitting completely to the divine will, dramatic things happen. First of all, she could have said, this is all insane, I want nothing to do with it. I want to live my life as I want to live my life. Had she said that, had she said that, humanity would not have preserved its freedom with the coming of the Messiah. 
for it is in human freedom that the Messiah is allowed into human history. And we hear this over and over again. God does not force his will upon us. The respect for human freedom, which St. Bernard says is the quintessential characteristic of the divine being and therefore the quintessential characteristic of what it means to be human. The more interior freedom we possess, the more human we become. In fact, as Bernard goes so far as to say that while freedom exists within the human will, the human will therefore is not affected by original sin, only its ancillary powers are. Not many agree with that, but it's a powerful statement and powerful reflection on this free relationship between God and humanity. We talk about, for instance, God's providence, and we talk about God's grace. We talk about all those things, and we understand that God is active in his relationship with us. That's what that means. Grace is a word, gratia. Um, in Greek, it's charis. It's the word that the charity comes from. It means love. And so grace is nothing more, and, and it is everything, because it is the expression of God's love for us in our personal lives. And to, to quantify that is, is kind of to not understand human relationships. Can you quantify the love a parent has for a child? You can say there are material manifestations of it, for sure, but you can never say somehow or other, well, the, the parent loves the child this much, but not this much, and so forth. That approach to grace is not theologically healthy, not emotionally, psychologically healthy, or not healthy really in our faith life. Grace is simply God loving us individually in our lives. And that's what the word means, so it's not making up a meaning that isn't there. So that Mary, in her total freedom, invites the Lord God himself into the human race and therefore into the world of humanity. That's where many people get the idea that Mary, um, it's, it's one way, it's not the only way, by the way, but it's one way, and people can get the idea, Mary is the mediatrix of all grace. Well, she has mediated between God and humanity and brought the Son of God into the world, the Messiah. Or that she is the co-redemptrix. She certainly, her work is what made redemption possible with the coming of the Christ. There's other, there's other arguments for that and much more specific and much more drawn out than that. But certainly it means that these terms are not foolish. Um, they carry with them, of course, their own, their own problems and their own difficulty. And so we have to be very cautious when speaking of them. But certainly in the story of the Annunciation, that behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word, certainly it's a legitimate reflection a spiritual reflection, a theological reflection. So in this gospel then, Mary, because she is the ark which contains the living body of God, she is oftentimes considered to be in history and theology the ark of the covenant, and she certainly manifests that in her encounter with Elizabeth and the visitation. When Elizabeth represents the ark of the old covenant carrying within her the last of the prophets, and Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, carrying within her the new Messiah, the new humanity, the new hope of, of humankind.
So now as we overall reflect upon this gospel, it's so familiar to us. We're so aware of it. But there are so many parts and pieces of it that we can take it apart, pray over it, and reflect on it for a very long time without exhausting the depths of its meaning and without in any way becoming so familiar with it that we simply hear it as a nice story. And that's part of the thing we have to avoid in our faith, is it becoming so commonplace that it no longer intrigues us. It's like oftentimes congregations pray the prayers at Mass so quickly and, and with, with such familiarity that the words fail to impress, the words fail to enter into the heart and into the soul. Let us, as we reflect upon this gospel, give thanks to the Lord for the great gift of his Son, give thanks to Mary for allowing us to have him, and give thanks to the living God for the possibility of our own salvation. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So